and welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. <laughs> hey, hey. We're three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching others in the process. I am Robin. I'm here with... Adam. And Marcy. <laughs> and tonight, we have two new friends joining us, J.D. Gravit and Brett Wilson. Say hi, guys. Hey, Black Case hey, Diaries. Hello. Thank you for coming hey. on our show. Thank you for having us. And uh, yeah, thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me back because I was here for the Christmas episode of Hey Arnold last year. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Time flies. Wow. Brett is an old veteran of our show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has come. He has come to join us once again to talk about Nickelodeon. So this week we're actually wrapping up our Snicktember, which is you know our our fun month full of Snick episodes. Heck yeah. And we're heading right into the spookiest month of the year with this special episode of the iconic show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the early 90s, Are You Afraid of the Dark anchored the 8 to 10 snick block with its bone-chilling 9.30 p.m. time slot. The show was geared toward preteens and teenagers and featured an awesome anthology of scary tales told by a group of friends called the Midnight Society. Sometimes the stories were refreshingly original, like one story about a carnival clown that stalks a young boy after he steals its nose. Others featured well-known monsters and existing lore, such as vampires, poltergeists, goblins, and even a leprechaun. Scary. (laughs) Co-creator and showrunner DJ McHale has even been quoted saying that Nickelodeon asked for stories that had literary references as a possible way to placate upset parents. Oh, yeah. Smart. Nickelodeon was playing the long game. Are You Afraid of the Dark was a show that not only ignited the imagination of its viewers, it emphasized the power of a good story. Tonight, we're taking a look at specifically three episodes, although there were many that we and we could and we could honestly do multiple episodes about this. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That provided young audiences with new takes on well-known stories and folklore. But before we launch into the episode, we want to take a minute to talk about our guests. Brett and JD are huge fans of Are You Afraid of the Dark? So huge, in fact, that they are actually here to promote a very special Kickstarter connected to the show. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so what is what is the Kickstarter? So uh, the Kickstarter is based on a book that I've been working on for the past three years, and it's called Scary Tales, Ooh. The Ultimate Unofficial Guide to Are You Afraid of the Dark? And the reason why I've been working on this is because, in general, I felt that there has been a, a drastically underrepresentation of Are You Afraid of the Dark in the digital oh, age. Mm. Like, I know Goosebumps has a lot of movies that came out for it and some other merchandise from the 90s that was popular. But, you know, Are You Afraid of the Dark never really got the same treatment. And so, you know, I felt the need to kind of fill that that gap, that hole, that need for Are You Afraid of the Dark fans yeah. to kind of satisfy them you know beyond the show itself so you know i took it upon myself to make a book about the show and i decided to make it like an illustrated episode guide so you know veteran fans can go back and relive their memories through the nostalgia and the trivia and like the special facts and the the interviews and all that good stuff and the art of course or you know you can give it to, you know, like newcomer fans who really want to get into like children's horror anthologies or anything kind of mildly spooky yeah. and what the essence of the show is all about and what made it special for us 90s kids now that we're older. So really, it's like a great collector's item, an art book, a coffee table book 
that can unite both the old and the new fans by showing everyone why it's so special and meaningful to us. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And, you know, the reason that we even know Brett, know about him, is because of his Are You Afraid of the Dark art. Back a little while ago, before we even knew you, I remember when I saw your art and I just could not believe how well they captured the show. I was so excited. It made me so happy. I just wanted to go watch the show again. <laughs> See, I did my that's, job that's, right. That's right. <laughs> Doing the art made you want to go revisit, and that's why I included the art in my upcoming book. Yeah. So why is Are You Afraid of the Dark so special to you? Why didn't you make a book about another show? So Are You Afraid of the Dark means a lot to me because it's something that resonates with me on such a deep, visceral level that really nothing else from Nickelodeon Uh, ever did before not even the cartoons and I was like a big cartoon junkie as a kid so just to kind of take you back to five-year-old me back in August of 1992 you know I first heard about SNCC and it was really exciting to me and I was watching Nickelodeon all the time and my dad decided to stay up with me and watch it in the living room in the dark and he like kind of challenged me to say well this you know this tv block is kind of past your bedtime and I used to go to bed at 8 (laughs) p.m at the time and he's like can you you think you can handle and stay up and I'm like the gung-ho little kid who's feisty and full of energy. Yeah, I can handle anything. <laughs> so, you know, I first watched The Tale of the Phantom Cab when it aired. And the moment I I saw Flynn, the cab driver in the episode, turn his head 180 degrees and say, I sort of died. You know, that, that was like the moment where I was like both terrified <laughs> and also excited. Like it was a weird mix of scare sighting. <laughs> You know, it was just an unreal feeling. And, you know, after the, the aftershock of kind of dealing with that, you know, I was like, oh, man, I got to see this again. Yeah. What about you, J.D.? Why is Are You Afraid of the Dark special to you? I think the biggest thing to me that made it unique was it was kids. I mean, that yeah. was something that really I had never <laughs> seen where, you know, it wasn't just a story being told. It wasn't just an episode of TV. There was that whole wraparound with the Midnight Society and they were kids, you know, it, it, which was just such a crazy, unique thing. And I think now when you look at TV, there are a lot more of those kind of kid-led things. Yeah. I, I feel like growing up for us, kids were cartoons. You know, for the most part, when you saw kids in shows, it was cartoons. And and Nickelodeon did a lot to change that. You know, we talk a little about mm-hmm. Pete and Pete and shows like that, Salute Your Shorts. I mean, where it started to focus on live-action kids, but... Are You Afraid of the Dark was just a whole nother animal. For me, as someone who's always loved to write, it's like I could have these images of Gary at home, you know, working on his story or any of them doing that, you know, and the idea of that was just something that immediately hooked Mm -hmm. me in. Yeah, I think when you're a kid, you just want something that's your own so much, and these kids had that. Also, when things are spooky, kids watching can think, well, those kids can handle it, so I can handle it too. Uh. Yeah. So the first episode we will talk about tonight is often listed as the fourth episode of season one, but it aired as a special pilot of Are You Afraid of the Dark on October 31st, 1991, The Tale of the Twisted Claw. This tale is told by David, one of the more soft-spoken members of the group. When he speaks up to tell the story, Kristen says that it's been a while since he has told a story. If you follow the order of the episodes on the DVD... This doesn't actually make sense since he told a story in the previous episode. Wait a minute. Did, did you have amnesia or something? You just told Lonely <laughs> Ghost last week. <laughs> Clearly, 
we didn't get to see every story that was told. We had just seen David tell a tale. But right. in, in their universe, it had been a long time Maybe. since he told one. So for me, that was always yeah. kind of like an exciting, mysterious aspect of it. Like, well, wait, you know, what tales got told between these that we didn't get to see? Were there weeks where no one told a tale? Were there weeks that yeah. they were too scary for us to hear? You know, what was kind of going on? So I always thought, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's kind of, you know, a break in the logic of it. And, and they didn't film them in the right order and all that real life stuff. But in the head cannon that I have for Are You Afraid of the Dark, <laughs> it's it's the yeah, we're just not getting to see everything, which I think was just kind of a, an extra depth to it that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean that's great head cannon. Cause I definitely was like, it's a continuity error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our our filmic minds were all about those. <laughs> so shows like this that don't follow a singular narrative are not often shown in the order that the episodes were shot, or even in the order the creators intended. This is something we came across with The Muppet Show, where the networks got to decide the order and it was out of Jim Henson's hands once the episodes were handed over. The story begins with Dougie and Kevin, two young boys out playing pranks on Mischief Night. They target Miss Clove, a woman who lives alone in a creepy house and is rumored to be a witch. After spraying shaving cream in her face, she knocks over a vase and the boys take off. Evil. Yeah. The next night, while trick-or-treating, the boys return to Miss Clove's house. She invites them in and offers them an enchanted claw as a reward. Miss Clove explains that the claw will grant them three wishes, and she warns them to be careful what they wish for. And that's a classic piece. The boys quickly discover that Miss Clove was indeed telling the truth, as each wish they made was swiftly granted even in ways they didn't like or expect. Uh, again, classic. <laughs> <laughs> Each wish turns progressively worse, and when one of the boys accidentally wishes his dead grandfather alive again, the boys make one final wish that they never broke the vase, and all returns to normal. This episode was written and directed by DJ McHale, though he used the pseudonym Chloe Brown. According to IMDb, that is his cat's name. So, we all know what this story is based on, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. It's a classic. All right, well, let, Marcy, we will tell you what the story is based <laughs> on. This episode is a modern retelling of the 1902 story, The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs. The story follows the White family, who receives the paw from a traveling soldier that came to dinner. Mr. White initially wishes for $200, which at the time, I think, was about be about $28,000. Wow. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and gets it as a consequence of his son's tragic and violent death while at work. He uses the second wish to hastily undo the first wish, bringing his mutilated son back from the dead and knocking at their door. Finally, he uses his last wish to undo his second wish. Jeez, he's like night and day with those wishes there. He should have just <laughs> went from $200 yeah. to like a mansion or, you know. His wife is the one who convinces him to wish for I the see. son to come back to life. The story became incredibly popular, with adaptations beginning as early as 1903. The first film version of the story premiered in 1915, and beyond that, it has been referenced in visual and written media countless times since it was first published. The story is considered a literary classic, and performing it has been somewhat of a tradition, much like A Christmas Carol, which we discussed a thousand years ago in our first episode ever. Yeah, way back. <laughs> I know. Can you believe we've been around for a thousand years? 
<laughs> At the time, the concept of three wishes was hardly new. Jacobs lifted the idea from the Book of 1001 Nights, which one of his characters actually even mentions in the story. Jacobs also reveals the moral early in the story, that it is impossible to find happiness through wishing. The paw was created to punish those who use it to attempt to alter fate. Oh, fascinating. The number three is also highly common and significant number in storytelling. The rule of three dates back to ancient Greece. The idea that concepts presented in threes are easier to remember and more interesting to the audience than any other number. Most of us use the rule of three without even thinking about it. Yes. I actually only, I chose to do three episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark for this episode <laughs> before even thinking about the rule of three. Aha. Yeah. And there are three hosts. Oh, uh, yeah. <gasps> we should have had three guests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Actually, there is a third guest. It's just a ghost. <gasps> this is often attributed to the idea that humans want to make order out of chaos. Taking events and placing them into a short sequence makes a story much easier to follow. Three is also thought to represent time and magic and is a sacred number in many religions. So there are quite a few differences and similarities, and we could, honestly, we could talk for three hours about each <laughs> one in this episode. Specifically three hours. Yeah, yes. <laughs> oh no, oh no! <laughs> I didn't even mean to do it that time. Both stories actually have a lot in common, from the structure of the story to the actual events that take place. Besides both stories including a magical object that grants wishes, they both have incredibly similar final acts. The scene where the two boys fearfully await the arrival of Dougie's deceased grandfather mirrors the suspenseful climax of the original story. Someone has been brought back from the dead and is at their door. One of the wishers tries to open the door and greet them, while the other grasps for the paw slash claw and makes a final wish to undo the last wish. It's almost exactly the same. The differences between the stories stem from the different settings and audiences. For example, the boys don't wish for money because they are kids. Instead, one boy wishes to win a race at school. What a lame wish. <laughs> In the original story, only three wishes were made overall, which worked well in service of teaching the audience the harsh lesson of be careful what you wish for. But in Are You Afraid of the Dark version, each boy was allowed three wishes, and this gave the characters more time to understand the consequences of their wishes, as they write off the first wish, granting as a coincidence. The Twisted Claw also had a much happier conclusion, as one of the boys uses his last wish to fix the vase they broke in the beginning of the episode, effectively erasing all of the wishes. Mm -hmm. In Are You Afraid of the Dark, the Claw was a device used by Miss Clove specifically to teach the boys a lesson, while in the original story, it was an item that Mr. White willingly took from an old friend. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of fun to look at where these things came from and how they changed it for the show. I think it's really smart how they did kind of inflate the story a little bit mm -hmm. and added more wishes. And, and that kind of made it a little more digestible for kids. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't like first wish, death. Second wish, <laughs> undeath. Third wish, gone. Like, you know, it's just... Yep. It's a little more relatable <laughs> that they like end trick-or-treating and then win the track race and, you know, all that other stuff that happened instead of like just being more abrasive like the original. So it was, it was a nice palatable spin for younger kids who tuned into it for the first time. You know, several of the wishes were inadvertent wishes, which I think is very relatable to a kid too. You know, yeah. it wasn't necessarily just thinking, hmm, what do I want? Let me specifically ask. It's like, oh, I don't want to trick or treat anymore. Or like, I wish my grandpa was here. You know, and it's like just those, those thoughts you have 
then there are consequences for, which I think, again, turning it to the kid's side, that's a really good way to do it because as a kid, you really don't do that much thinking. You just, it's, you're more of a reactionary and that's how a lot of their stuff was. Yeah. Right. It's so like, it's so easy to accidentally say, I wish. Yeah. Or, or not fully think about the consequences, which is why we get to see them unfold the way they do. So why is this story a good episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Why does it work? <laughs> the monkey's paw drew from popular literary sources to create a tale that was both relatable and unsettling. Although the story has been told in various forms time and time again, it still sends chills up our spines, especially during its first telling. This episode was likely the first introduction that many kids had to the classic story um, because I had no idea. But now, <laughs> looking back, I'm like, wow, the, the, the idea of that monkey's paw consequence, consequential wishes is like all over the place now. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Writing a short form story for television is harder than it seems, and using the structure of an already existing story can be helpful as a baseline. However, it's not easy to take an already established story and have it relate so well to a new audience that they felt like it was for them all along. The tale of the Twisted Claw has a strong beginning, middle, and end. It has relatable characters, a creepy vibe, and a strong moral. So what do you guys like from this episode? What are your favorite moments? When he accidentally wishes for his, his grandpa to be there. Like, oh, yeah. The, mm -hmm. the menace and tension they're able to build as the car pulls up and you don't see anything you know and i think that's another thing that's really impressive about the show is that they're not going over the top we're not seeing zombie grandpa shambling <laughs> up the yeah. and, i mean that might have be, been because it would have been too scary but i also think that's kind of something that's harder to pull off and it's yeah and it's you know something it's your imagination is scarier than anything they could have put on the screen and i think in this episode and in a lot of episodes, they do a really good job of letting that play out and, and letting you kind of scare yourself. Mm -hmm. So I really love that moment. And then the other is just that classic um, Miss Clove after they leave <laughs> and things have been quote unquote fixed and she's just cackling. And I think <laughs> she delivers that so incredibly well and it's so witchy in the best of ways. And I think that's just kind of like an iconic moment you know, in a series that has so many that really doesn't necessarily get looked at as often as like being Sardo and stuff. So to have that moment, I think is really cool too. Yeah. I really like that scene with the grandpa as well mm -hmm. because they do build that tension so easily. It's, they do such a great job with it, but I, I also love that it does mirror the story so much. So like in the story, what's happening is that the dead son is coming to the door and he knows it's coming to the door and the, the wife is trying to let the son in as he desperately tries to find the monkey's paw to wish for the son to be gone. Oh. Another part that I love is that, I don't know, I love the relationship between these two boys and their differing mm -hmm. personalities because they're really well-established personalities. And I think the kids actually are really good actors for children in this show. Mm -hmm. I thought they did a really good job pulling that off. That That's something that Are You Afraid of the Dark consistently nails and i think that's why the show as a whole is so beloved so the second episode we're covering tonight is actually from the beginning of season two it is the tale of midnight madness yeah. 
this is a special episode for our show specifically because of all of the movie references yeah. in this episode. Yes. It's one of our all-time favorites. And I have heard that this is also DJ McHale's favorite episode, and he has got impeccable taste. Because mm. uh-huh. I think this is I think this is my favorite episode as well. <laughs> this horrifying tale comes to us from Frank, the bad boy of the group. In it, he brings back the recurring character Dr. Vink, played by Aaron Tager. Aaron Tager was also married to Anne Page, who portrayed Miss Clove in the Twisted Claw. Ha <laughs> ha, what a winky dink. What a power couple. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously. Dude, imagine going up to their house for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> would you actually get candy, though, or would you just get tricks? Ooh, oh. yeah, that's true. You'd get some soup. I was just yeah, going to... dangerous soup. <laughs> <laughs> Beat me to it. Although the episode wasn't a direct adaptation of another story like the Twisted Claw, Midnight Madness pulled from Bram Stoker's Dracula and used images akin to the infamous Dracula knockoff Nosferatu. Although many episodes of the show deal with vampires, this one gave young audiences a look at the classic movie Vampire. The Rialto Theater is in trouble. One of its employees, Pete, loves the local landmark and is willing to do what he can to save it. One day, a strange man named Dr. Vink arrives with his own silent film and a proposition. Dr. Vink guarantees the manager that this film, a silent vampire movie, will fill his theater with people. There's only one catch. In exchange for showing his movie, Vink wants one night a week to show his other films. Pete plays the film to a disgruntled audience after another movie malfunctions. To everyone's surprise, the audience loves it, and the theater has seemingly been saved. But when Vink comes to cash in on his deal, the theater manager refuses. Oof. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> a dick. I mean, <laughs> yes. seriously, all you had to do once. <laughs> one movie. Yeah. It's not asking for much. Once a week. He's going like, one it, night a week. And I mean, the first thing I would think is, oh, the guy who saved my theater, his other movies are probably really good too. Yeah. yeah. Like, give him a shot, for goodness sake. <laughs> like, jeez. Yeah. Pete soon discovers that there's more to the movie than he thought. When the vampire walks from the screen. When Pete and his coworker slash crush go to check on the manager later on, they find him passed out and they are trapped in the theater with a bloodthirsty vampire. Pete lures Nosferatu back into the movie and defeats him by exposing him to sunlight. After all seems well, Vink returns to alert the staff that he now owns the theater, and there are a lot more movies where this comes from. This episode was written and directed by DJ McHale, though he used the Chloe Brown pseudonym again. This was the episode that we would show it to people, and we would say, this is the scary one. (laughs) <laughs> this episode's actually scary. Yeah. Like this is what we would say because it was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I I have. I just. I loved it so much. It made me so like so excited to to be scared. Mm-hmm. So this episode is special because it doesn't only draw slightly from literary references, but it's also deeply rooted in classic film. The biggest literary reference would be Dracula a horror novel written by Bram Stoker in 1897. When Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, he didn't really consider it to be fiction. He did extensive research and used eyewitness accounts of actual events as inspiration for major plot points of the novel. Um, that's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, did you know Dracula's a documentary? I had (laughs) not, uh, nope, didn't know that. (laughs) Wish I didn't, still. 
In Wallachian, a dialect of Romanian, Dracula means devil. In a Time article, best-selling author J.D. Barker wrote, Wallachians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous, either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. After his publisher initially passed on the book, for fear that it would create panic, Stoker made drastic changes, and it was released as fiction. Not only were there narrative changes, but the first 101 pages were cut. Yep. Oof. That's a lot. That's like half the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, Brahm was able to get his original preface and parts of his original novel published in an Icelandic first edition. It translates into Power of Darkness. There is also a short story called Dracula's Guest that holds pieces from the original, and of course Brahm left behind his notes and other first editions for fans looking for the truth. It's like he left oh little gosh. traces of it. And people didn't even really realize that the first 100 pages were cut. Oh they gosh. found the original uh, manuscript and they saw that it started oh on gosh. page 102. <laughs> this book was interesting because it was like a compilation of like newspaper clippings and different items and supposed first accounts and things like that so it wasn't no precisely like a a, (laughs) just a novel it was no yeah scary (laughs) no in midnight madness the name dracula is never mentioned However, the male protagonist in Vink's movie appears to be Jonathan Harker, the main protagonist of the novel. Another reference would be sensitivity to light, though light would not kill Dracula and a coffin. Yeah, light rendered Dracula powerless, but it did not kill him. Midnight Madness also pays homage to the infamous film Nosferatu from 1922. But one year earlier, in 1921, a film called Dracula's Death tried to convert Bram Stoker's novel to the screen. There is not a lot known about it, for it is considered to be a lost film. But there are a few pictures from promotional items, and the general plot is known. The premise was that a young girl visits a mental hospital where one patient claims to be Count Dracula. She experiences awful visions afterward, and has trouble distinguishing whether or not these are truly just visions or if they were real. (laughs) Are You Afraid of the Dark seemingly takes inspiration from this piece by having Frank in the beginning preface his story by saying, but sometimes the movie seems so real that it's hard to tell the difference between what's make-believe and what's really there. And the suspension of disbelief, too, that we're usually accustomed to whenever we go see movies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plays on that stuff. And if you go to a theater and watch a movie right after seeing this, you're like, oh, God, (laughs) what's it going to happen? Nosferatu has a bit of a controversial beginning. Its creator, F.W. Murnau, did not obtain the rights to make a Dracula movie. Instead of obtaining rights, he changed the names of the characters and a few plot points. One of the most important being that instead of a stake to the heart to kill the main antagonist, it is the sunlight. A bit of a dramatic way to get the villain to turn into a flame that burns out. Yes, so because of this, Stoker's widow sued Murnau and saw to it that as many versions of the film 
be destroyed as possible. Dr. Vink's movie isn't the same, but maybe he has one of the only copies? Sure. Oh, man. Yeah, How could valuable be. could that be? <laughs> Holy cow. Obviously, Are You Afraid of the Dark uses the name Nosferatu for the vampire character. But in the original film, the vampire's name is Count Orlock. Dr. Vink's movie is actually called Nosferatu, the Demon Vampire. In this way, Vink's movie seems to be a mashup between the original Dracula and Nosferatu. The similarities between Nosferatu and Midnight Madness are highly evident in its visuals. The scenes where Pete and Katie are running from the vampire mirror the actual movie scenes in an eerie and wonderful way. The shadows Nosferatu casts along the wall, his long white fingers as he reaches for the door, and even the reactions from Pete and Katie are all reminiscent of the film. Yeah, if you watch clips from Nosferatu and you watch those parts of the episode of the episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, you yeah. will see it. They really matched it so well. They did. I remember there was a scene in Nosferatu where he's reaching for her essentially, and so it just casts his shadow of his long bony fingernails yep. along her, like uh, where her heart would be, and so it's like he's gripping her heart with his shadow. Oh, so creepy, so beautiful. It's oh. This tale is a love letter to silent film and monster movies. There tends to be more media focused on the Dracula-style vampire, a talkative count that can take the form of a bat. It should be noted, though, that this style comes more from the 1931 film adaptation of Dracula than the book. The image of Nosferatu is much more terrifying visually and is less often used in stories of vampires. This episode struck a chord with most audiences. When we watch a scary movie, we take comfort in knowing that it is, indeed, just a movie. But what if the movie was real? Don't even joke about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. What do you guys love about this episode? Being the uh, film major in college, I really had a special appreciation for cinema. Uh, and like that classic feel of like uh, silent films, black and white films, you know, films filled on like the film strip. Just seeing the atmosphere of the episode really, really resonated with me. And it, it made me almost want to go inside the episode just so I can sit in the theater and watch it all play out. I didn't even yeah. care if like the vampire was chasing me. I just wanted to be there <laughs> and experience it firsthand. <laughs> Dr. Vink kind of geeks out about like, oh, Oh, the feel, the the look, the smell of it. And there's, there's a certain like charm to those types of old theaters because that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, you have all these multiplexes mm -hmm. around and they're all like decked with bells and whistles to like optimize the viewing experience. But sometimes yeah. you just can't beat the, the classics. You know, I just really relate to the setting of it and to the whole like history behind the vampire and just the overall classic feeling of uh, the, the story. I think I love it because of all the major players. I love Dr. Vink mm -hmm. so much. He's incredibly acted and he's really well written. And I just, I love in a children's show, having a villain who's kind of an anti-villain is so yeah. cool oh, yeah. and smart, you know? <laughs> so kids, you know what I mean? It's, he's, he's way more layered than just being like a bad guy. He's, and he's so fun to watch. And I remember watching this with my parents, watching it with my dad. And he loved Dr. Vink. I love that. I love the vampire in this. 
Because, like we said, I mean, vampires don't look like this in Mm-mm. children's movies or, I no. mean, I saw so many specials, you know, where it's, you know, it's like the the suave count yeah. who's a, yeah. a bit sexy, right? Because he's going <laughs> to lure his women so he can bite them. And, I, I, I mean, that's just the one we see. Mm-hmm. This one is, he's much more creepy, almost lonesome, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, it's just very, a little romantic, but not, you know, yeah. there's just this... He's silent. He doesn't say anything. He's got this hunger. Yes, he never. He's never truly like. He, I don't know. He's just menacing in presence, and it's you know he doesn't have to have these grand lines that are scary or anything like that. He just kind of exists, and he and he sucks blood because that's what he does, and it's <laughs> kind of scary to do to to do it that way. Yeah. Uh, in, in my opinion, honestly, I think it's more scary. Mm-hmm. It's definitely yeah. scarier than your average vampire, your Dracula type. It's it's definitely scarier than your average Dracula, but Nosferatu's teeth always bother me too because they didn't look like typical vampire teeth. They just kind of looked like these weird disjointed like yeah. things hanging out of his gums. And I'm like, how is he able to make puncture wounds on people's necks? <laughs> yeah. So maybe that just adds to his like offbeat mystique. I-, I love the gentle magic in this episode because Doctor Vink could have totally killed that theater manager. Like, yeah. for real. Like, he yeah. really could have. But, I mean, he just, like, comes back to life at the end. Like, there's no big deal. And he's not, like, a vampire now or anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it all turned out okay in the end. So, it's not like he's that bad. Right. The special effect of Pete going into the movie screen, like, 30 years later, mm-hmm. is still incredible. It's aged yeah. really well. It's literally seamless. Like, Mm-hmm, you can't yeah. see where they made a cut. You know, you can't see any of that. It just, he walks into a black and white movie and it's black and white yeah. and you watch him train. It's just, it's unreal that they were able to pull something like that off 30 right. years ago. And it shows how mm-hmm. much effort and care and thought they put into these episodes. I I think that the, my memory's bad, but I feel like this was the first one that you showed me, Robin. Yeah, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. This, this is the episode I show people when they don't know what Are You Afraid of the Dark is. And before we move on, I want to say one more thing, because we cannot forget about Nosferatu's little cameo in um, The Night Shift. <laughs> uh, yes. In that wonderful episode of SpongeBob where he's, who's flickering the lights? Oh, yeah. Nosferatu. And you know, and you know that has to be the Nosferatu from Dr. Vink's video, Dr. Vink's mm-hmm. movie. Right. Because he... Count Orlock is the name of the vampire Nosferatu. Yeah. yeah. He, he came yeah. out of the movie again and decided yes. to go visit Bikini Bottom. So we have one more episode to talk about tonight, but before we do, we want to ask our guests a little bit more about their Kickstarter. So, yeah. Brett. Who is this book intended for? Who who do you think would really get a kick out of this project? I I admit I kind of jumped the gun earlier and mentioned it a little bit, but I'll reiterate it again. Um, so basically, the book was written intended for people similar to me. No, there aren't other Brett Wilsons out there, at least not to my knowledge. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I, I when I wrote this book, I essentially had in mind this is something I would I would want to read or I would want to constantly look at like, cause if you're not writing something that doesn't appeal to you, then why do it? I mean, I mean, at least from an artistic perspective, I would say that it's geared towards like, you know, the nineties kids who are in their like late twenties, early thirties, even early forties um, who have like 
some memories of the show, whether they're like vivid or faded. And, you know, they, they can use this as a guide to revisit those memories, trigger some of them and maybe help them like go deeper into uh, rediscovering Are You Afraid of the Dark with that. So it's definitely for like the, the millennial demographic who's like around our age. Um, it's also a great book for younger kids who just want to get into uh, kind of like the horror anthology, safe horror, children's horror that we kind of grew up with as kids as well. Um, and that in a way will help them get into the show as well. So really it's it's the best of both worlds because um, with the same purpose, you can appeal to two very different audiences and bring them together um, through the magic of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And it, it, you know, it could be a great source for parents, you know, future parents too, who, who've grown up with Are You Afraid of the Dark, loving the show, and then maybe wanting to give their kids a taste, you know, yeah. show them this episode yes. and then show them you know yeah, give them open some the more book. stuff about the book yeah and... they can watch the episode yeah they watch the episode they open the book to that spot and you can say you know look this you know here's some fun facts about the episode like you know here's here's what the actor said you know i don't know it's just i i think that that would be really cool and and you know that's a perfect segue to the next question we have for you what what exactly would be in the book what kind of content are people should people be expecting if they were to get one of these books Oh, man, this thing is chocked full of extras. But of course, you know, you have the meat and potatoes here. You've got like a rundown of all 91 episodes, including the two revival seasons from like 99 and 2000. Each one has like a specific illustration that captures the essence of the episode, as well as like a, a layout on the opposite page of like the title name, basic credits, when it aired. Uh, you got like a synopsis for all of them so you can get the gist of what happens. Uh, memorable quotes, you got trivia, and you got my like little review at the bottom of, you know, what I feel um, the episode is like, how it stands today, what could have done better, what it does great. And then I also give it like a special matchstick rating instead of stars. So like, if something is great, I, I give it like five matchsticks out of five. And if it wasn't so great, maybe like a two or three. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, for like the very special episodes that everyone loves and remembers to death, like Midnight Madness, uh, I would right. give it a top tier tail seal and that has like a little campfire next to it. So like, you know, you got all these, mat the, the idea is you got all these little matchsticks and it's just so on fire. You had to start a campfire because it's that oh, good. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. But you mentioned some extras. What, what about those? In addition to like the, the basic stuff you would expect from this type of book, um, there's also a few other additional uh, sections that are both in the beginning and the end of the book to kind of surround it. Um, so you have like a brief, uh, are you afraid of dark history timeline that was constructed to the best of my ability off of my research. You have a forward by DJ McHale himself, which is very exciting Ooh. to read. And you also have other things later on, like concept art, uh, a look into my process of how I made the art for the book, maybe a bonus tale in there that's thrown in that doesn't quite fit into the, the TV show episodes but it's still like noteworthy but but last but not least uh in addition to all that and like frequently asked questions as well from fans we have some interviews in there i think that's what really like drives it home in terms of yeah. its credibility because i was very fortunate enough along with some other people who helped me develop the book to reach out to a couple of people from the show who like worked on the show so we have a nice wow. a nice rounded out 
you know, group of interviewees uh, ranging from like actors and actresses to like, you know, production on more on the production side to writers and directors. So there's a little bit something in there for everyone. And I think, you know, whether you're a newcomer or a veteran fan of Are You Afraid of the Dark, you're just going to be like ear to ear with a big smile on your face when you get to see what we have in store for you. I know with some of those interviews too, JD, you helped collect some of those, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That was one of the things when, when I first started working with Brett is he already had a few really impressive interviews with people that are kind of, you know, on the heavy hitter side of things, which was really exciting. And then, yeah, one of the, the main things I did in helping continue to develop the book was um, reach out and try and get some more interviews. And the nice thing about the digital times we live in is that people are kind of more accessible, but it's also like, oh, this person has... 50,000 followers on Twitter and I'm sending them a direct <laughs> message and they're never going to respond to me. Um, but, but yeah, like Brett said, we got some really, really incredible interviews. Um, and I mean, I, I, we don't want to give any of them away because we want you to find out when you get your book. But I will say, you know, one of the things about Are You Afraid of the Dark is a lot of times you'll see those where are they now lists. Um, and with Are You Afraid of the Dark, it seems other than a select few, it's like they disappeared forever after the show and no one can find them and we found some of them so it's it's really cool some of the people we were able to connect with and and interact with and you know some of them it was like cool here you know here's the interview and they were really generous and some of them it's like you talked at length with them just about life and about you know their show and their career and their family and like it i think that's what was so cool about it is that you know one they are real people you know, we know this, but they're also kind of yeah. people you idolize and you grew up watching. But it's also, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, they were so passionate about the show still. They were so excited about the book. And I think that's something that really drove it home for me, too, is it's like you're saying to people, you know, you put a ton of your life into this. You know, this was something that was a huge thing for you when you did it. And when you're seeing what we're doing, you're excited and you want to be a part of it, which I think really drove home, you know, how legitimate and special what we've put together was so guys this sounds like an absolutely amazing project we're really excited for it to to get going and it, it it's, it's it's the ultimate guide to yeah. are you afraid of the dark and it sounds like something that every are you afraid of the dark fan needs to have on their shelf so we have one last episode to talk about the last episode that we're going to talk about is another modern-day adaptation of a classic story, The Tale of the Midnight Ride. Oh, yeah. This, I believe, was the first one you showed me. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, yep. I think so. Uh, that makes sense. Because you yes. know how I don't like spooky things yeah. that much. <laughs> Adam, was, Adam really hates spooky things, and I think the first time I showed him the, the show, the intro scared him. Dude, I'm I mean, not to be fair, it's scary. I think I talked about this. I think I talked about this in our, uh, we did a Are You Afraid of the Dark episode a little while ago. Mm -hmm. um, a long time ago. Ugh, eons ago. <laughs> but I, I talked about the same thing. Whenever the intro would come on, I'd be watching Nickelodeon, be watching a cartoon or whatever, and then mm -hmm. it would just like darkness. And I'm like, ah, oh, switch. <laughs> we were done. Cartoon Network. Like, <laughs> I it's I couldn't do it, man. I oh, I love the intro. To me, it's like the moment I hear it, I immediately have the urge to put put on a blanket and flip off the lights. Like yeah. I am ready. See, the thing is, now 
Absolutely. <laughs> now I think it's great. I think it sets the mood perfectly. Yeah. But at the time, yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. Okay. So season three of Are You Afraid of the Dark starts out strong with an introduction of Tucker, Gary's little brother. Tucker has to tell an initiation story to be accepted into the group, and he delivers a tale based on Washington Irving's The, Head the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. The story follows Ian, a teenage boy who just moved to New York to the New York town of Sleepy Hollow. The Halloween dance is coming up, and when he asks a girl named Katie, Ian becomes the target of ridicule from her jealous ex-boyfriend Brad. After a confrontation at the dance on Halloween night, Brad convinces Ian to go into the woods and retrieve the Headless Horseman's pumpkin as part of an initiation ritual. While in the woods, Brad poses as the horseman and scares Ian. After the dance, Ian walks Katie home. In the woods, they come across a mysterious man that sounds a lot like Mr. Ratburn from Arthur. <laughs> and, and they give directions to the Bridge of Souls so that he can find his way home. After the man disappears, Katie goes home and Ian heads back to the school to get his bike. While Ian is at the school, he discovers he's being stalked by the real Headless Horseman. And he must find a way to cross the Bridge of Souls before he too will lose his head. This episode was written by Darren Catania, who also wrote The Crimson Clown and The Dream Machine. It was directed by DJ McHale. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Top tier, man. Yeah. This episode is different from Twisted Claw in that the story re relies heavily on the fact that it, it, it is an adaptation. Every character in the story knows about the legend of Sleepy Hollow, and it's a major plot point. The idea of a headless horseman was not completely original. There's actually an Irish legend of the Gonkion, a grim reaper, that carries its head. Because Irving weaved actual locations and family names into the story, some believe that he based the Headless Horseman on an actual Hessian soldier who lost his head near Halloween in 1776. That's really interesting because I wonder if there's like some loose connection to the hopping Hessian in Rocco Modern Life's Sugar Frosted Frights episode. I think that it is pretty established, like despite like him basing it off of different lore, I think it is pretty established that the Headless Horseman himself is a Hessian soldier. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's very possible, yeah. Other possible influences could be Sir Walter Scott's The Chase, a translation of The Wild Huntsman by Gottfried Berger, The Brothers Grimm, and Tales of Headless Riders from the Middle Ages. So Headless Riders, as scary as they are, have been around for quite some time. Tucker starts the story by recapping the original for the audience at home, a smart idea since a lot of children might not know the specifics of the story. He explains that the ghost was a soldier that lost his head to a cannonball during the Revolutionary War, something that is directly lifted from the original story. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow actually turns 200 this year. Everybody? Nice. Wow. Yes. The story follows Ichabod Crane, a new schoolmaster in the area who starts to fancy the beautiful Katrina Von Tassel, Katrina's other suitor, Brom Bones, does not take kindly to the competition. Midnight Ride does not only exist alongside the original story with characters referencing it, it also adapts it. Ian is Ichabod, Katie is Katrina, and Brad is the brash Brom Bones. In the episode, Brad is the one to tell Ian the story of the Headless Horseman, just as Brom is the one to spook the schoolmaster with the tale in the original version. The episode also follows the lore of the Bridge of Souls, the one bridge the horseman cannot cross. Brad also dresses at the, as the Headless Horseman to scare Ian, and one theory of Sleepy Hollow is that Brom Bones dressed as the Headless Horseman to frighten Ichabod. The key difference between the two, however, 
is the definitive existence of the Headless Horseman. In Irving's story, he leaves it up to the reader to decide if Ichabod was indeed spirited away by the Headless Horseman, or if he was killed, possibly run out of town, by Brom Bones. What a jerk. Yeah, in the story, Maybe. yeah, in the story <laughs> you don't actually know. He leaves it up to your imagination. I like to believe that the Headless Horseman was real. Here's why the story works as an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is considered to be one of America's first ghost stories, so it's absolutely perfect to tell around a campfire. It was designed to be repeated, and the story itself references the oral tradition. Even if you don't know all the details or can't quote the story verbatim, most of us can tell the story by heart. But somehow, this incredibly well-known piece of fiction has continued to capture our imaginations for 200 years. Even children watching Are You Afraid of the Dark are most likely familiar with the story, so seeing it applied to their issues, school bullies or crushes, made it even more compelling to younger audiences. You know, one of my favorite parts of this is just how cool or just so chill with all that's going on Ian seems to be. Yeah. Throughout the whole episode. He's like, you know, he's getting or attempted to be bullied, mm-hmm. you know, out of out of being with Katie, but he's like whatever, <laughs> man. I'm not I'll dunk on this guy. Like, you know, he just comes back with every perfect comeback and it's like Brad doesn't even stand a chance. Yeah. It's great cuz it's not it's not often done that way where the Mm-mm. You know, protagonist is kind of like right, usually actually competent. Yeah, usually he's kind of bumbling and kind of nervous. Yeah, and, yeah, and mm-hmm. Katie would be like, "Oh, it's okay. I look past your bumbling nature, and I still like, <laughs> and I still like you." But in this case, he's like, "No, I'm just as sly as Brad, if not yeah. better." Yeah, exactly. He's yeah. like, "And I'll be a gentleman too, yeah. man." Yeah. On top, I think it works for Tucker because I first of all, it involves an initiation, which Tucker is going through. In, in his life at that moment mm-hmm. in time. But also because and Ichabod originally in the story is not this brash kind of, you know, he, mm-hmm. he kind of likes Katrina. Mm-hmm. Katrina's not very nice to him. She's going to choose no. Brom Bones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She just uses Ichabod to, to make Brom Bones jealous because, mm-hmm. you know. Just to have fun with it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, they did change the character to be more, you know, more of a ladies' man <laughs> than Ichabod was. But yeah, so what do you guys like about the episode? It's very similar to Midnight Madness. I like it for some of its effects. Remember when uh, the Headless Horseman comes out of that like, brick wall that's moonlit, yes. I guess? Oh, yeah. Very similar to how uh, Nosferatu came out of the movie screen. So yes. you know, mm-hmm. on, a, on a technical level, I appreciate it. But I also just love the, the traditional feel. I, I guess there are more parallels between Midnight Madness and Midnight Ride that I thought of, uh, than I thought. Scenes in the woods where they they deal with the horsemen are are magnificent, especially the end when like he bursts into flames and crosses that bridge of souls. It's it's yes. a, it's a very satisfying experience for me. It's it's crazy. It's kind of like with Midnight Madness, the the vampire comes to them, and then in Midnight Ride, it's like they are brought into the story and they are now an integral part, and they have to figure out what's going on and then fix it. You know and. <laughs> I, I think that's so that's so neat. That's so cool. And I I just I love when he comes out of the out of the wall and and he says, you know, he's like, Brad? Yes <laughs> <laughs> <Guess> again. <laughs> he just watched he watched what? a shadow 
materialized. Yeah, the few bits of comedy really help lighten things. I love Ichabod's performance. I think he's so over the top. And, yes. like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they point him to the right bridge, the one he doesn't take in the story. He's like, oh, I certainly would have gone the other way. And <laughs> I, just, I, I know Robin said he was very Mr. Rat Bernie. And I don't I don't know if it was the guy. I know it, the guy it who was voiced him. Wasn't yeah. a bad because I yeah. know he appears as a science teacher, I think, in um, Dead Man's Float. But, like, he's in right. another episode. But, yeah, it just. Yeah. It, he's just so wonderfully over the top um and it's just mm-hmm. that's always a moment that sticks out to me is really fun you know his two little appearances yes. are just really fun and then at the end it's not like they defeat you know the headless or any of that it's just ichabod's like you know what i think i'll actually go the other way and he just kind of course corrects the story by going yeah. the way he should have I mean, good guy Ichabod, because he he really could get out of reliving this horrible experience for all eternity. But he's decided, you know what? I'll I'll take one for the team. I'll go back and <laughs> cross over the bridge. Maybe he's done it so many times by now that he's just done. He's just yeah. like, whatever. I've done it. I'm not even afraid of it. He the looks pretty comfortable anymore. on that horse, yeah. honestly. Yeah. yeah. Some people think these woods are <laughs> haunted. <laughs> <laughs> As he's like full ghost looking, he's, he's like completely white. white. <laughs> Even on a white horse, I, think, I know right? it looks like he just walked into a like a shower of baby powder. Yeah, that's a perfect way to describe his look. <laughs> so those are some th- those are three episodes that rely heavily on other references, whether literary or film. And we just want to talk about that just a little bit because we love this show so much, and it's fun to talk about where these stories come from. It's so it's so cool to tell stories, and honestly, there's really nothing new under the sun, right? We always pull from different stuff, <laughs> yeah. and it is it's really it's really neat to see how things change and evolve, and putting our own spin on things, and you know, being able to take something that was so classic and loved by by generations and making it appeal to children is one of the things that made this show so special. Yeah. Which is why there are other episodes, and we're going to list a couple here. Not all of them, because there's so there's many. There's so many. We <laughs> we could never say we've listed them all, because yeah. we're always going to miss one. Exactly. Um, here's some other episodes notable for literary references and lore. Jake and the Leprechaun. Spoiler, look out for this briefcase solely on this episode, probably around St. Patrick's Day. Maybe? I could, Yeah, I could write a dissertation on Jake and the Leprechaun. <laughs> Next, we have Captured Souls. Then we have The Manaha, The Nightly Neighbors, Night Shift, Vampire Town. Basically, any episode with vampires, really. Um, The Tale of the Final Wish. Which is cool. That one's not explicitly like a story, but there are so many stories in it. Ah. Tale of the Full Moon, Guardian's Curse. And Walking Shadow. But you know what? Um, We say we can't really mention them all here, but you know where you can find all of the episodes? In the dang unofficial guide to Are You Afraid of the Dark? (laughs) Make sure you go check out the Kickstarter. Yes. And guys, thank you so much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. And also, anybody listening, seriously, anyone, if you are a fan of Are You Afraid of the Dark, please consider supporting this Kickstarter. Their content is incredible, and hopefully, with your support, we will see a lot more from them in the future. Yeah, we gotta keep the yeah. spirit of Are You Afraid of the Dark going, and uh, we we have a few ideas in, in behind the scenes, so 
you know, depending on if this uh, campaign is successful or not, which, you know, we hope it is with your help. Yeah. You know, we can we can take things a little bit further and expand upon the groundwork that Ari Fair Dark already laid for us and, you know, continue into the 2020s, give it a, a fresh new feel and just a lot of exciting things that we hope to bring to light for y'all. Is there anything else you guys want to say about it before we before we sign off here? I would just say uh, October 1st is when the Kickstarter is launching. I don't know if we specified that. Um, okay. So definitely it'll run from October 1st to the 31st. Um, and the best place to go if you're looking for links and stuff about it uh, would be Brett's Instagram, Brett Wilson Art. Um, that'll kind of be the hub for us. I mean, I'll be shouting it out. On my social media, you know, people that have been involved in the book will all be kind of promoting it, but that'll be kind of the hub. Um, and I know Brett can dive in a little deeper, but I know he's planning on hosting uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark watch parties kind of throughout October. That sounds like a great time. And I think we're also going to link it on our website as well. And if you are familiar with Are You Afraid of the Dark, check out those watch parties and see if you do like the show. Okay. Well, friends, old and new, I guess this is another case closed. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Join the Midnight Society at Nick Studios after hours. Next Saturday night, starting at 9.30, 8.30 Central, midnight to midnight.